0: Good evening and welcome to the National Library. My name is Erin Dampney. I'm the Director of Building and Security Services here at the library and a mother of two. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders past and present for caring this land we are privileged to now call home. Now, importantly, before I begin, for those of you who have been brave enough to bring your babies with you, there is a baby change room just as you go out of the theater in front of the lifts as you turn left. We are thrilled to welcome presenter, political commentator, and author, Jamila Risby to the library this evening. Jamila is no stranger to Canberra, having graduated from the ANU and working as an advisor to former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. She joined Mamma Mia Women's Network as editor-in-chief and published her first book, Not Just Lucky, in 2017. Jamila is the editor of The Motherhood, a collection of letters from some of Australia's favourite women sharing what they wish they'd known about life with a newborn. And as a mother of two and five-year-old daughters, I can say that this is the book that I wish had been written five years ago. Tonight, Jamila will explore the highs and lows of being a mum with contributors Emma MacDonald, Lani Scar and Anna Rose. Please join me in welcoming them.
1: Thank you so much. So nice to be back in Canberra. I'd also like to begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet today, and pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambri elders, past, present, and emerging, and most particularly, the mothers. They warned me that my world would be turned upside down. They lied. My world was not upside down because an upside down world implies that it's still the same world. But viewed from a different angle. My world wasn't upside down. It was gone forever. I'm gonna take you back there. I am wearing nothing but leggings. <laughs> That's it. It is 1.42 pm, and I haven't yet made it to the shower, because the baby won't settle unless he's in my arms. My husband is at work, and in a few hours' time I will start texting him incessantly, berating him for leaving me alone for so long. I am burning mad at him. He has the privilege of being allowed to leave each weekday, whereas I am a caged animal living in captivity. I have watched four episodes of Gossip Girl since midnight and three seasons since the birth of my son two weeks ago. My nipples are sore, my head heavy, and the laundry basket is full of tiny piss-stained sleep suits and poo-soaked towels. I have spit rather than perfume on my decolletage, and I couldn't say for sure whose spit it is. Everything hurts, but mostly my broken dreams. I've tripped and fallen into a Truman Show style loop of awfulness. I tell my husband, I have ruined everything. A new world indeed. There were a lot of tears in those early weeks after my son was born, and many of those tears were mine. Once the visitors began to slow and extended family returned home, my crying baby, my crying began to rival the babies in both magnitude and frequency. I was swollen and raw from giving birth. I was still sweating out excess fluid at night. It was really attractive time, and I had no clue what I was doing. There's some people without children who look very uncomfortable. <laughs> Buckle up. Uh, My mind dealt exclusively in internalised reprimands of how I should be feeling and dark comparisons with how I was feeling. There was a deep anger and there was even more fear. I was frustrated by the happy motherhood lie I felt I'd been sold and I became convinced that I was the first person ever to go through this and to feel like this. Going out alone seemed daunting and altogether too hard. I was desperately, desperately desperately, desperately tired. My tightly controlled life had evaporated, my confident, proud sense of identity replaced with a zombie who couldn't tell night from day. I produced milk like a cow, but nothing like Laney, but we'll get to that in a second, and regularly examined the consistency of someone else's excrement. There was washing to do, always washing to do. I still don't quite understand how such a tiny person can produce so much washing. It was the loneliest that I have ever been. Almost three years on, I have superhero-like fantasies about returning in time to console my former self. I would sit her down in the beaten-up armchair, gently curling strands of very unwashed hair behind her ears, and taking our baby in, her, in my arms, I would remind her to breathe. When you're at the gym and you're doing a particularly painful exercise or lifting heavier-than-usual weights, you instinctively hold your breath, even though it actually makes lifting the weight or doing the exercise harder. For me, life with a newborn was quite similar. I was so tightly wound up that I forgot to do myself even the most basic of kindnesses. I know what former me is thinking. She's waging a great war inside her head, a battle of acceptance of and acquiescence to the fresh hell that is her newfound existence. Her fear is that it will always be like this. She dares not hope otherwise because the disappointment might be too much to bear. I want to hug her and fill her with promises of how much easier, how much better it will become. I want to show her the endless stream of iPhone photos and videos of that beautiful baby boy who has grown into a funny, clever and kind toddler and who will one day become the very best of men. He is unquestionably the greatest thing that my husband and I have ever done, but she doesn't know that yet. I want to show her all that lies ahead. I want her to realise that it will be okay and that the world will expand once more and she won't always feel claustrophobic and trapped in a tiny apartment as if the walls are closing in on her. I want to herald a reassuring message from the future that it's true she will feel like herself again, that she will know herself again and that life can be big and bright and beautiful and loud and luscious once more. I decided to write the motherhood after a long walk with my friend Lucy when she told me she didn't know how to help a new friend who'd recently given birth. Cute baby onesies, muslin wraps and booties are adorable, but they weren't going to help her beloved mate through the toughest period she'd ever experienced. They weren't going to lift her out of a deep and dark fog. The baby books all give you useful tips on how to look after the baby, but nobody, nobody tells you how to look after you. More than half of new Australian mothers report feeling lonely and isolated during the first year of their child's life. Many new fathers experience the same thing. My feelings of isolation were compounded because I didn't have that many girlfriends with kids. The birth was a shock and the months that followed even more so. I was utterly unprepared for the seclusion. It's only now that I realise how common my experience was. The loneliness of modern mothers isn't an exception, it's the rule. It didn't used to be like this. It's hard to imagine that a tiger-skin-clad mother would ever have been left alone in a cave to fend for herself with a newborn for days on end. If her spear-wielding baby daddy had to go out for a few hours hunting boar or buffalo or dinosaurs, I wasn't good at science or history, she would have been safe and warm in the company of dozens of other women. Mothers, aunts, sisters, cousins and fellow tribe's people all taking collective charge of a new family's well-being. It takes a village to raise a child, and yet so much of modern parenting takes place in silos, each of us existing within the confines of our, our own white, picket-fenced prisons. We limit our support structures to those who are related to us by blood, not wanting to be an imposition on others beyond the time period it's deemed socially acceptable. I didn't ask for help and I really, dearly wish I had. Thankfully, one friend realised that I needed it without me having to ask. My mate Claire arrived at the bottom of my apartment stairs unannounced and ready for action. She had an armful of food and her then nine-year-old twin boys by her side. She instructed her sons to sit and be delighted by my newborn. (laughs) Nine-year-old boys are particularly good at being delighted by newborn babies. Claire went straight to the sink and she began washing up. She stayed about 15 minutes, clearing the whole house, cleaning the whole time, telling me I was a champion and walking out the door. One hour later, I received an SMS that changed everything. This wasn't a quick note of, hey, cute baby, well done, thanks for the tea, bye. It was a letter in text message form, and oh, what a letter it was. Claire's kindness filled me up to the brim. I read her wise words and found companionship for the first time since becoming a mum. She understood what I'd been through in a way that my husband couldn't, try as he might. And then she described the long, luxurious, eight hours of uninterrupted sleep that I would one day have again. It was like soft porn. And I gave myself up to the fantasy. That sleep fantasy pushed every button. I used to read it several times a night. And by sharing her story, Claire helped me accept the realities of how my own would be written. My hope is that this book will do for other women what Claire did for me. I didn't want to share only my own experience because that's awfully narrow and might not prove particularly useful to many. So I began speaking with mothers who I love and admire, some of whom are on the stage right now, asking whether they would relate their experiences for the benefit of new mothers to come. I was absolutely overwhelmed by how many of them agreed furious in their determination to make those early months just a little bit easier for someone else. As each letter arrived in my inbox, I was invited into the quiet, lonely living rooms and bedrooms of women all over Australia. Tonight you're going to hear from three of those contributors, Anna, Lani and Emma, three women to whom I am incredibly grateful to and whose exquisite letters are some of my absolute favourites, but I don't have favourites because they're like children and I love them all. Each has a long and impressive biography that I am going to leave to the side for just one night because this evening they are here only in their capacity as storytellers and as mothers, and that should be achievement enough. Please put your hands together for Emma MacDonald, Lani Scar, and Anna Rose. All right. So I wanted to start by asking each of you to tell me a little bit about what it was like to write your letter, what it was like to take yourselves back to that moment in time, and at the same time, you might tell us who your child slash children are and how old
2: they are now. Emma, did you want to start? I will start. Um, I have a 12-year-old son, Thomas, and an eight-year-old daughter, Imogen, who we call Immy. Um, I am a journalist by trade, and I, when I wrote the letter it all came in a giant rush and I wrote it and then the day it was due I think I read the instructions and I hadn't done what Jamila had asked. <laughs> so I immediately emailed her and said, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna miss the deadline, I'm just gonna need to rewrite this. So it's a lesson in uh, reading the question first. So it, it all came out, um, even though I had Thomas 12 years ago, uh, it, I remember it as if it was yesterday and it was, For me it was a really pleasurable thing and I know a lot of the letters um, are are really sad and kind of visceral and it's all about being in the thick of it, but I'm on the other side now with a 12-year-old who can get his own breakfast and do lots of things for himself and I sleep in every weekend and I get as much sleep as I need and it's really, really good. So for those of you who are a little bit... um, demented by it all, it gets, it gets better, I promise. It
1: gets better. I should add that of the 32 letters to the book, two were submitted on time. Uh, and that is fair enough for new mothers. Anna? Hi, I'm a climate change campaigner and I write a lot
3: about climate change and this was a very different thing to write about and it was very difficult and I had to drink a glass of wine while I was writing my chapter because it was so traumatic just remembering how... Tired, I was. So it took me a few drafts, and normally it doesn't take a few drafts. So I think, yeah, it, it's there's kind of so much to say, but at the same time,
4: it's really hard to say it. Lani, so I'm a journalist, and I also am a mum of four. So I have um, a four-year-old and also two-year-old triplets. So um, we so knew <laughs> that was coming. <laughs> So, um, I found the letter writing process... uh, Like, even though I write all the time for my work, I found it difficult because there were so many things that I wanted to say and include in there that, you know... But I also wanted to impart a message and, um, you know, help other mothers. So, yeah, it was difficult to get everything in that I wanted to. But, and it was also, um, I think I take for granted some of the little things that we do every day and, you know, that that people find so interesting that, you know, and, and that's what we were discussing earlier is that, you know, just the process of getting the pram in the car and getting them all in the car for school drop-off or changing all of their nappies or doing all of the things that we do. So, yeah, I, I sort of found that I needed to put more in it than I than I did initially, but, yeah, it was good because, you know, I really think it's important to help other mothers and be kind to other people, and I really feel that this book is, is going to do that.
1: I know that one of the key obsessions that new mothers are often criticised for is being obsessed with talking about the birth and telling their birth story. And I remember uh, hating that before I had children. I was like, oh, shut up about having the baby. Like, just just so boring. And then I had one and I really wanted to tell people all about it all the time. (laughs) Um, I want to ask, did you and do you still talk about the birth of your children? And was it something that you needed to do or is it something that you sort of pushed to the back of your mind and is it true that you forget how painful it is?
3: I forgot, apparently. My husband says it was painful. I don't really remember. Um, I should also mention, I forgot to tell you about my son. His name's Robbie and he's two. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, okay. Hopefully he never listens to this. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I really cannot remember much and I didn't. I didn't... Well, I was pretty lonely. I didn't kind of have many people to tell it to anyway in those
1: first few months. Yeah. Emma, how about you? You're a little bit further on.
2: Yeah, I found um, once I'd given birth, I understood why the birth stories were important because it validates that you've done this miraculous thing. And I'm still gobsmacked because if you've read my contribution, you would know that I had no idea that I was pregnant, that it wasn't something that was ever planned. So I was kind of in shock by it all and... I hadn't really... I just wasn't into babies at all, and I've changed. I, I'm ashamed at how callous and cold I was. I just was not interested in children. And then I had my son, and I just... That was it. It was just this instantaneous w- wanting to have five, six, seven more children. <laughs> you can come a babysit any <laughs> <didn't> time, really. <laughs> didn't allow... Um, but I suddenly realised why one of my besties... Um, she was so proud that she had given birth naturally without any drugs. And I was like, why would you do that? Just take get, take all the drugs, do whatever. Like, I just didn't understand. She, it was like she was telling me this most profound truth about her very essence. And I was like, whatever, have drugs, don't have drugs. You know, I just, I didn't connect to it all, at all. And then once I'd had... My son, which was by a caesarean, I had gestational diabetes. There was so much fluid, I can't even tell you. We all heard it splash onto the ground. It was very graphic. Oh, it was just this story I love telling everyone. Um, I should want, My dad came I along to the it.
1: launch in Melbourne. He's not here tonight, by choice. <laughs> uh, so that gives you an idea of what's to come.
2: Yeah. No, I, I understand now. And, and it is absolutely the most profoundly profound thing I've ever done. It's just... You would all know if you 've had a baby it's like you've just created a miracle, and i 'll never get over that sense of I created this incredible child like i still I still feel absolutely just so grateful that it happened because I didn't choose for it to happen that way, and I might have missed out had I been so stupid for much longer yeah.
1: so I often um, Make, I speak a lot about gender in, in my work. I don't usually write about motherhood. And one of the things I like to talk about is the fact that I genuinely believe if men gave birth, we would treat them very differently. Like the kinds of parades we have for men who return from war to remember you know, contributions, which are I- I- immense contributions <coughs> uh, from World War I or World War II. Like women give birth, man. Like there would be parades and there would be medals if we were men, but we don't have them. Um, and when you say that, men look at you like, it's not that hard. But then you hear Lani's story, and you go, three babies at once, you can have a medal. <laughs> <Can> you tell <laughs> us about three babies at once?
4: Like, When you posed that question, I actually don't think I've told a lot of people about the actual birth before writing this piece. I think with our daughter Molly, um, I did, because she was 18 hours in posterior labour, so that was very painful and and horrible, but... um, but, and it was also on my birthday, so that was nice too. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, before writing this piece, I didn't really tell people a lot. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it was definitely a different kind of birth, having triplets. So I had a caesarean, um, but it, I was and I was all booked in for the caesarean the next day and then um, I went into labour naturally and because Molly was so painful I kind of didn't think I was in labour so by the time we got to the hospital I was 10 centimetres dilated and um, Jim, our oldest boy, his cord was wrapped around his neck twice so he would have died if we hadn't got to the theatre as soon as we did and it was all a big rush and there were tons of people in the room so um, yeah but it's interesting because yeah with Jim, Nate and Edie I haven't really told my birth story until until you read the book.
1: We're in for a treat then <laughs> when we go home to go reading. Um, and I want to talk to you about your letter and you talk about the physically relentless nature of those first six weeks to three months and I remember there's I had so many different emotions when I read people's letters as they came in and mostly feeling remarkably privileged to get to read them all. Yours I think I identified with more than any other letter. I remember thinking that was a bit like me. But you talk about the f- how physically relentless that early period is specifically around breastfeeding and the lack of sleep. What do you think was harder for you? They were intertwined.
3: It was I mean I was so exhausted. I think when you're pregnant, you get a lot of messages about how important breastfeeding is. And I think I was so sleep deprived that I really just went a bit crazy with it, actually. Like, I, I didn't want to feed him any formula, and we did a little bit, but I wasn't thinking rationally and because I was so sleep deprived. And he had reflux, so he was waking up every 45 minutes. So because I didn't want to give him formula, I was waking up every 45 minutes. And an adult sleep cycle is two hours. So if you're never getting a full sleep cycle, then your brain is just not able to work. And also because he had reflux, he would only sleep on me or on Simon. And so, yeah, I just found the washing, the breastfeeding, the having to like walk around the house all the time to get him to sleep because if we put him on his back, he would cry with so much pain from the reflux it was just yeah it was relentless it was so different to the work well anything else that I'd ever done because even if you're doing you know all of us have work that's really (coughs) intense but you've always got the ability to take a coffee break or to leave or to say like actually you know I'm just gonna get this task done 80% and then you know clock off but you just could you just can't when you've got and you if you're choosing to breastfeed, you know, all the time. Um, and then he would vomit it back up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was Which worst. is just
3: rude. Oh, you know that saying about crying over spilt milk? I mean, that is, that is absolutely... Like, it's that all right was, if it's
1: vomited up milk. You're allowed to cry over that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, whether it's spilt or vomited, there
3: was so much crying.
1: <laughs> Emma, you describe in your letter yourself as an accidental and reluctant mother. And you, you've, you've touched on that. Just earlier. Um, but you said that the moment that your son was born, you were converted. For you, that was it. What was it before you were pregnant that made you feel like motherhood perhaps wasn't something that was in your future or wasn't a priority?
2: Oh, I was so stupid. I, <laughs> I just had worked really hard. I just wanted to be me. And I didn't want to be judged on what I had produced outside of what I was doing journalistically. And I was starting to. I'm quite um, an ornery person. I was like getting irritated that everyone was saying, are you, are you thinking about babies? And um, Jenna Price, who's a, um, quite a character, she used to hassle me all the time. She used to ring from Sydney. She's a journalist. She's behind the Destroy the Joint campaign. And she would say, when are you having babies? And I'd say, Jenna, I, it's not on my agenda. Do you want to know what I've got on the story list for today? And she'd say, you will regret this. if you. I'm telling you now, if you do not get pregnant, you will miss out. And don't come crying to me. I'm telling you, go and have a baby. And even my editor, Jack Waterford, would walk by, poke me in the stomach, and he'd say, you better get a move on. Your eggs will rot and fall out. (laughs) (sighs) So I was feeling all sorts of pressure, and that just turned me right the other way, and I was like, and I think I'm my amazed you was had children.
1: I would have refused to get pregnant out of spite. Oh, I'd be like, yeah, I hate you people. That's what I, I would s- never have a baby. But I she had no doing. choice. She, it was. It happened.
2: Well, that's that's the irony. That's why I'm so, I guess, grateful. But um, I think my husband knew well enough to just not even go there. So we had never really even talked about it. And um, and a funny story is that um, after I'd given birth to Thomas. I've had a caesarean, I don't know which way is up, you know, they wheel me back, Paul's got the baby, they wheel me back to the hospital room, I'm in a private hospital room, and the phone rings, I'm like, am I meant to get, like, I can't move, I can't feel below, and I sort of reach over and I get the phone, I'm like, hello, it's Jenna Price, she's like, what do you think, is it good? I'm like, he's beautiful, she said, I told you, I'm like, thanks Jenna goodbye. <laughs> like, seriously. So, but I do owe Jen a, a, a great um, a great debt of gratitude. But, um, yeah, and sometimes I'm asked to give speeches and I think, what do I really want to tell these young, ambitious women that I'm going to speak, you know, university graduation or some such thing? You know, what I really want to say is that, um, for me, I can't put into words how grateful I am to be a mother. And it's left Every other story and every other thing I've done has paled into significance. So I guess I'm just really grateful that I had the opportunity and I'm still really happy. Like I just, it was such a blessing and even though I had no idea, no earthly idea because I hadn't read the books or done anything until the very last moment, um, it worked out really well and I felt just so grateful and this kid was so perfect and beautiful and that's all I remember is thinking how could I have not wanted like hey I just when people are pregnant I say prepare to fall in love and I know it doesn't happen that way for everyone but for the vast majority there's just this moment where you've got this creature and it's profound and beautiful. Lani, you have to tell
1: us about having triplets now. Like, we just need to know about the logistics, because everyone's here for the logistics when it comes to you. Mm. Like, and remember, Lani has triplets and another one, right? You know how people get horrified when you... for people who have kids really close together, and they go, oh, two under two? Lani had four under two. So can you please tell me about just the logistics of those first few weeks? Like, what did you do? We
4: had a lot of people who did help us in those first few weeks, so we were really, really lucky with that. You know, we had strangers dropping off meals and, um, you know, people coming down to help, like from Sydney or wherever, to, to help us out, so we were really lucky with that, and, um, and my husband took three months off work, so that was a major thing, but, um, you know, we just had to be regimented, you know, with Molly, I didn't follow any routine, I breastfed her when she wanted to, you know, we slept m- when she wanted to, I was like, no, I'm not going to follow routines, but with and Edie, I had to have routines, that was the only way that we survived, so, um, you know, we were, and they were premature, they were born at 34 weeks, so... We had to feed them every three hours and, and I was breastfeeding them, so I had to breastfeed them every three okay, hours. so but
1: hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen people breastfeed twins. You can't do that. It's yeah, triples. I did not grow a third boob. You'll be
4: pleased to know. Um, so how I did it is, um, I and so I twin feed, fed two of them. I had a big pillow and had two sitting there. And then I would also pump. So I was basically only getting 45 minutes of sleep like every three hours because by the time I fed them and you know with newborns it's so long to feed a newborn so they were feeding for an hour and then um and then after I fed them and put them down in their Moses baskets well I'd have to put the breast pump on so I'd be you know I got a hands-free breast pump so I had one of those lovely little um tubes with holes in it and I would walk around the house doing things like so I could get Other stuff done, and just so, and and our freezer was stocked with breast milk. So it was kind of um, you know obviously them being premature, that was really difficult. Edie um, had some really significant lung issues, so you know she was almost flown up to Sydney when we were in the hospital, and that would have been horrendous because. It just, how would we have done that logistically? But um, it was kind of a blessing as well because, you know, because they weren't feeding much and because they were cared for in the special care nursery and I was in the hospital, I was able to. You know, put the lovely breast pump on every hour, like every three hours, and just build up a big bank of milk. And, you know, we've got a normal fridge with two freezer drawers, and literally at one point the whole freezer drawer was full of frozen breast milk. So, how we would do it? <coughs> long, very long answer to your question is, I would tandem feed two, and then um, either my husband or someone else would give the other a bottle of expressed milk. Or when my husband went back to work, and that was so hard at three months, I was really scared the first day he went back to work, I would, um, because they weren't rolling, I would sit on the couch with my double breast pillow, and then I would have one on another pillow next to me and have the two attached to my boobs and hold the bottle for the other one. So, So, yeah, it was just surviving and, you know, and... Yeah, it was. That's. I'm. I'm very lucky that um, I didn't have issues, and you know, I have friends and and know people that that have had issues, and it and it's not easy for everyone. But you know, I'm just fortunate that I was able to have that bit be relatively easy for me.
1: I made Lani do all this maths for her letter, <laughs> like I was like I want to know exactly how, man, how many litres of breast milk there was, I, wanted, I was very inquisitive and um, the, one, of the, one of the pieces of maths you did was that there were 9000 nappies changed. In that period I just want to leave that with everybody (laughs) and I feel like that could be used as sex education in schools
4: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if anyone wants sex education they should just come to my house for like (laughs) two hours or an afternoon and I'll just be like see ya and they won't be wanting to have
1: um, children so soon (laughs) Um, I want to ask um, each of you new mothers are often accused by non-parents of being obsessed with their baby being unable to talk about anything else and I want to ask firstly, was that you? And where do you think that criticism <coughs> comes from? Because you're talking about something that is all consuming and yet suddenly you're expected when you're hanging out with your mates or whatever, not to talk about it. You're supposed to put it aside. So were you someone that wanted to talk about your baby all the time or were you someone that wanted to talk about anything but?
4: I, I don't know, I think like I talked about my baby and babies, but everyone is always, and of course it's completely normal, but everyone's always so fascinated as we all are about the logistics and, you know, yeah, I don't know. But I guess I also, um, you know, talk about my interests and my career as well, but yeah, I don't know. People always want to ask me more questions than necessarily I want to talk about. So that really hasn't been an issue for me, I guess.
1: I remember one of... uh, Um, one of my mates, when she first had a baby, her sister said to her, you've gotten really boring. You don't talk about anything else anymore. And she just blew up and was like, well, I don't have time to read books and I don't get to go to the movies and I'm not working. Like, what else am I supposed to speak about? Nothing else is happening for me. This is life right now.
3: Yeah, I think it was... I remember I had a great parents group and we talked a lot about our babies. And then there was this one night where we all went out for dinner without the babies, and they were maybe, I don't know, three months old, and we kind of looked at each other and realised we'd never asked each other what we did for work. And these are all professional women with amazing jobs and careers, and then we kind of went, oh, okay, we can talk about this now. And it was a great moment because I think we were all at that stage where we were able to start re-engaging with the rest of the world, and for me, actually, that was just before a federal election where I was helping with some climate campaigns and so I had to kind of get back into things pretty quickly and that just made me move out of just baby mode and back into being able to talk about other things.
2: Emma? I was in baby mode, hook, line and synchron, because I had my mum who um, was at home with me and we lived in the same suburb, it was just a beautiful time where I didn't have to talk about politics ticks or anything because she'd come over and we'd talk about the best method to puree vegetables and how beautiful is the end what's he done to Emma that that
1: sounds excruciating. (laughs) No
2: and I loved (laughs) and you loved it. I just loved it. The only time I can remember feeling distinctly kind of just realizing that I was a different person was in my mother's group which I found great. All professional women um, it was just lovely to be able to talk and not get judged for wanting to talk about you know, who could lift their head up and um, who was rolling. Um, But I remember at the very first mother's group, we had to introduce ourselves. And I was just in so much shock. I just said, I'm Emma, and I used to be a journalist. And the the nurse said, Emma, you are still a journalist. You've just had a baby, but you are still a journalist. And I thought, I can't ever be a journalist because I need to stare at this child 24-7 for the... (laughs) And I and I would and that's one of the things I put in my letter that I would just look at him all day like I just I could not get enough I would, it's, I'm a parody I was ridiculous mm-hmm. Anna I know you were similar to me in that you really struggled
1: with that loss of working identity I I didn't enjoy the loss of working identity I sort of went if I'm not if I don't have my work then who who am I yeah. and what is my contribution Do do you think new parenthood is harder on mums today? in that regard? Is it harder today than it was say 50, 100 years ago because if you go back 100 years a professional career wasn't available to women? Yeah I feel like the things that
3: made me good at my job were things I actually had to unlearn to be a parent and I know I've had a lot of friends with similar experiences of being like high achieving professional women and, like, the better that they were at their work, the kind of worse they were at parenting, and certainly for me. So, you know, unlearning things like having to do a to-do list. I mean, I would write... I was so used to having a to-do list that I would write my to-do list, like, feed baby, have shower, (laughs) make cup of tea, (laughs) feed baby. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes some of those things got done, and I I could tick them off. It was really just such a massive adjustment. Like, I've been a climate activist since I was 14, and that has been my life. And, you know, one thing that I already knew before I had Robbie was separating myself from my role was an important thing that I had to work on. And then having the baby just made it so much, um, you know, I had no choice. I had to do it. And yeah, I think it's it's absolutely got to be harder these days, right? Like,
4: I think it is difficult, you know, especially when you care about the work that you do and and that that is intrinsically a a part of you. I mean, I don't see myself as journalist is my job. I am a journalist. I'm always, you know, thinking of stories Mm. or, you know, talking to people and learning their stories. So I think it's, I think as well, certainly how I felt when you're you know on maternity leave and then you go back to work there is a sense of like I certainly had a crisis of confidence you know you go back to work and you're like okay well I've been doing this period you know I've been doing this thing for this period of time and you know now I'm supposed to go back to Lani journalist you know that doesn't have a thousand and one priorities at home as well like you, you do still have that at home and you do have that at work so you know sometimes I find it hard to give 100% to each sphere and you always feel this internal conflict of are you giving enough here or are you giving enough there? And, you know, I, I think mothers in previous generations all had different challenges but I, and, and I, I don't know whether it's necessarily right to compare that, that we have it harder or they, have it, they had it harder. But I think that's certainly a challenge that, yeah, I, I struggle with. Still,
1: you know, all the time. I think I think it's Annabelle Crabb who wrote that the pressure on working mothers in the 21st century is a really precise one. And I'm going to mangle her quote. But it's something like, your job is to work as if you didn't have a family mm. and to look after your children as if you didn't have a job. Mm. And that is, that is how you achieve perfection. Can
2: I say something, though? we are all so much better at what we do once we've had a child because mm. no-one works more efficiently, more creatively or more doggedly than a woman who's got a childcare pickup or yeah. has to duck to the toilets to pump for the next feed. That's very so true. I am, um, having been on selection panels, I would always give a job to a mum just because I know she can totally pull She's it out. She's highly efficient and, and I operate I would on up, Yeah, I would turn up to work in the gallery. You know, pre-baby I would turn up <coughs> maybe maybe midday, 11 midday-ish, and um, I would put pen to paper at maybe 6, 7, and I'd get home at 10, and my husband was the same, you know, we just lived this ridiculous life, and when I came back after a baby, I would sometimes have my first story written before 10am, and by 4 o'clock, I would be, there would be smoke coming out of my fingers, and everyone else is just oh, do you want a coffee? I don't know what I'm going to put on the list today. I don't know. I might make some more calls. I'm like, just do it. Just do it. We've got to go. We've got to go. You know, And it's just the efficiencies of working mothers. We are, we are very, very, very good to hire. We are excellent. <laughs> put that on your resume. <laughs> Emma McDonald
1: quote, we're good to hire. Um, we might stay on that for a moment. If you think about government policies in the area that are around working mothers, so specifically paid parental leave and childcare um, subsidies. Now, of course, these are uh, policies that are about supporting working fathers as well, but the reality is that the majority of people who these policies are supporting end up being the women. Um, And has the federal government got it right in this sphere? Is there more to do? Did you feel properly supported in your return to work was it something that was manageable is manageable
4: I think as a country as a whole that we don't have it right I think men need to be you know really supported to to take more time off as well you know the only way I was able to survive was because my husband took 6 weeks off with Molly and also he took 3 months off with the triplets but that is a rarity and you know and he has a flexible working arrangement at his work where he works his five days over four but again that's a rarity you know he spoke on a panel on international women's day about that and and i think that we need to realize that parenting is about both mothers and fathers or mothers and mothers or fathers and fathers you know it's it's a joint um adventure and so both sides should be supported in the same respect
3: yeah Yeah. i agree my husband took probably eight or nine weeks off with Robbie, and it was absolutely crucial. And I, I think it's too rare. It's it's hard for a lot of men. I mean, he runs his own business, so it was possible. But um, for both parents to be supported is, you know, where there are both parents. I think that's so crucial.
4: And I also think... I'm sorry, Emma. <laughs> I also think that, like, it would be a lot easier on us as mothers as well if we did have support that whole hard six-week period, you know? Like... Um, my mum had a mental illness and um, she died when I was seven. But, you know, I learned recently that she had postpartum psychosis at two when I was two weeks old and I got taken away from her because she had to be hospitalised. But, you know, and she didn't have that support, you know, because she didn't have my dad there, you know, the whole time, I don't think. And, um, you know, I think that if we did, al- as a society, see that in that first formative six weeks when it is really, really hard, if we had, you know, our partner there, that it would be easier, you know? it would They would be able to get us help if we needed it, you know, mentally or physically. I, d- I just think that that is something that, you know, as a society, I don't think we have right.
2: Emma? Yeah, I have many thoughts on this. My, my biggest beef at the moment is that we are all working in, in industries which are 24-7. So even um, if you have a flexible workplace, it doesn't mean that the demands of the job are going to stop. Mm. And so, I mean, we all want to work, but um, staying attached to your industry means that you're just taking on board this massive load when sometimes it would be just really nice to just vague out and just be a mother. And I've found so many times my home life and my work life have just come to a resounding um, crush at my expense. And my job now is a lot more family-friendly and I have older children, but um, I remember I came back after my daughter was born and I just thought it would be a great idea to make me Bureau Chief. And I honestly almost lost my mind. I just couldn't do it. And I... um, Yeah, there's... You know, we're, we're human. So I... I think there um, are policies in place, but I think the nature of our work and our jobs are just so all consuming and even if my employers weren't putting pressure on me to you know come up with a scoop or do something, I would put it on myself so i don't know I don't know that the solution is a government policy or whether we need as a society to elevate the um the role of children and the value of children. Why are we also um Obsessed with work. Why? You know, I guess it's it's a win for economics and commerce and business because we're all we're mm. all playing we're all playing in that game. But I agree. But how do we change it? You know,
4: how do we how do we become more like other countries or societies like that Italians, do have a better I or Sweden? You know, don't yeah. they have a really great balance of parenting? So how how do we get to that point? More paid parental leave. Mm. Start.
1: Well, that's why. I mean, when you talk to, if you take the Swedish example, so does everyone know how paid parental leave works in Sweden? It's freaking mecca. Like, Sweden, Swedish know what they're doing. So the Swedish have created a system where paid parental leave is funded by the government, and, and it is the leave is not attached to the individual parent. The leave is attached to the child. So the child is entitled to 24 months of paid parental leave, but the child only gets that 24 months paid parental leave if two different people take it evenly. So you only get it if both parents take that take some leave. So you, you get a minimum of 12 months for mum taking it, let's say, and if the partner is a dad, well, if you want to take keep taking leave until age two, then the other parent has to take it. So it, like, there's, a, there's a really clear incentive from the government that's saying we want both parents to be involved in those early years. You can decide how you want to split it, if you want to take it at the same time, separately, whatever, but that's what you've got. And you can take it any time until the child starts school. So if you want, you can use it later rather than earlier. Told you, it's like Mecca, it's the best. Let's we
3: should like do that. We should do that. <laughs> we should also pay our childcare educators fairly, yes. much more.
2: And we shouldn't lose our super when we do take maternity leave mm. so that we're consigning ourselves to retirement in poverty and... We have a list. Yep. We'll make a list. I'll send it on. Um, we should just
4: do like a
1: mini cabinet here ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and find someone to fund it. Um, and I wanted to go back to the idea of how we talk about parenthood and how we discuss new parenthood because one of the things that's come up doing the media for this book and there's been a lot of interest in this book has been a number of commentators asking me about motherhood being portrayed in a negative light in this book and I'm going to start with Anna and I'm also going to speak as well because Emma and Lani your letters are both quite joyous and Anna's and mine are there's there's more anger in our letters. There's a lack of joy, a decided (laughs) lack of joy in our discussions. The joy came a little bit later. It just came a little bit later. But when you're speaking to someone who is considering motherhood, or when you are speaking to someone who is pregnant and it's already happening, and no matter what, this this motherhood business is ahead of them, how do you balance a discussion with someone when you're talking about the reality, and the struggle that is involved in the reality, and also the joy that is, that is to come. I want to know how you des- each of you describes what parenthood is like to someone who hasn't done it. So
3: I think I was like you. I didn't have that many friends who had kids. And I remember one of my friends saying, you're going to love those early few weeks. It's like a little bubble with you and your family. And I said, Sounds so nice. I want a bubble. (laughs) I want the love bubble. I've never had... She's like, you're not going to read the news. And, you know, she worked in politics as well. I was like, no. Of course I'm going to read the news. Anyway, uh, (laughs) clearly I did not read the news, but also there was no bubble. So it was really a huge shock. And the sleep deprivation, it was... So when I talk to new parents or to parents who are about to have their babies... You know, I'm honest, and I say, look, it might really suck. Just be prepared. And it's okay. Like, I remember you, Jamila, sent me a Facebook message, and it was so great because you just said, one day you will sleep again. And I I thought, okay, like, Jamila's baby's a bit older than mine, so if she says that it's going to get better than it will... When do
1: I get the sleeping one? When does that start? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um,
3: but, you know, Having having someone um, you know understand that it was hard and but that it could get better like that was really important and so I I am really honest about my experience that those first few weeks were awful to be honest they were really the hardest six weeks of my life and um, it, it's so much fun now like having a two year old is is so great and it was worth it. Unless you have three of them.
4: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One
3: two-year-old is super fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, my, my policy is just be honest and it might be great or it might be really hard and you might get a sleeper or you might get a non-sleeper or you might get three. Um, you
1: just never Hopefully know. Hopefully they know, though, by yeah. the point you're
4: talking to them. Yeah.
1: Do you sugarcoat it, Lani? Um,
4: I don't, but I, I like. Also, I'm aware that I had a positive experience, and 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 you know, I'm aware as well that everyone has different experiences. So my key advice, and what I say to people who are pregnant and and you know about to have a baby, is that make sure or have just had a baby, is that make sure you allow yourself to ask for help and accept it, because you know. We really probably only learned that with Jim Nate and Edie, but that made the world of difference, is accepting help and saying yes when people said, is there something I can do for you? Is there, you know, can I come round and cook you dinner or, you know, let me bring you some meals or whatever. Like, it's okay to accept help, you know, you're not less for accepting help. And to be honest, it probably makes the other person feel really good that they're helping you. And, you know, we were so grateful for that. And that's what I did say the other day to David Lipson, who just, um, him and his partner just had a baby and they were really struggling and, you know, and so I took them around some meals, I took them around a copy of the book and, and some muffins and, you know, like, you've just got to accept help and, and that's okay, it's not making you less
1: by accepting help.
2: Emma, what about you? What's the question? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you, are you honest with parents-to-be? Do you tell them straight up what it's going to be like?
2: Well, as you know, I'm a glowing, um, fervent promoter of motherhood, but there are, two little cliched snippets of um, information that I do say, and one is just get through the first six weeks, whatever way you can, and it just gives you that little bit of hope that however bad it is, it won't be so bad. And the other is every day is a new day, and so the baby that's screeching and imperfect one day, the next day, and you can't... There's no logic to it, so you just have to go with it. So... Um, as a control freak, type A, um, you know, OCD person, I just had to learn that almost immediately, that I've got no control. And so while I do say prepare to fall in love, I also say, you know, it, yeah, you get tired, but just get through the first six weeks and expect nothing. And, you know, every day is a new day and I feel that those things helped me get through when it was tough. And I'm not saying... I had a perfect sleeping baby. I mean, it was pretty good, but it wasn't perfect. And there, I remember one day thinking, you haven't actually slept, which means I haven't slept, which would explain why I can't even focus and I don't think I can even pick you up. I'm just so tired. And I just went to my mother's and I just gave her the baby and just sprawled out on the sofa. And I don't know how long I was gone for, but, you know... Yeah, it it can be pretty brutal, but I don't remember that as much as I remember how wonderful it was. So I do have a very rosy-tinted glow when it comes to um, parenthood. And I also think they're going to find out how shit it can be, so don't (laughs) scare them now. Just let them be in this paradise of pregnancy. It's all (laughs) going to be awesome. You go and get your lavender oil and your your Mozart soundtrack and um, (laughs) colour coordinate your nursery and And, have fun. And
4: I think, too, that you don't really... I don't know, do you really listen enormously when people are giving you advice before you have a baby? You think you'll be fine. You, everyone's like, oh, sleep now, you know, get your sleep in. But you're like, whatever. My baby's going to sleep till 10am.
1: It's going to Also, be fine. I, that, I've got to say, of all the advice, that's the one that shits me the most. You can't bank sleep. Like, it's not how sleep works. But you can at least, like, enjoy
4: Sleeping in until 10 a.m. You can, like, oh, you can I have it. a sleep
1: in and you can go,
4: okay, I'm waking up and I, I've enjoyed that. But, like, you, you yeah, of course, you can't bank sleep. But, yeah, I just think you don't really listen anyway. The,
3: the thing about late pregnancy, though, is a lot of people find it really hard to sleep. Yeah. Late pre- like, yeah. I was so sleep deprived that I, when I was pregnant, that I actually um, got. So we were at the service station, and I went in to pay for the petrol, and my husband was waiting in the car, and I came out and I got into someone else's car. <laughs> like, I sat next, down, next to this random guy, and he, like, looked at me, and I looked, oh, you're not my husband. Like, I was already sleep-deprived going into it. That was probably yeah. one of the major issues. You didn't take the advice? No. sleep-now advice? Well, I couldn't. It was, you know, it's hard.
1: <laughs> um I'm going to ask, we've run out, we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask each of you just to sum up by saying if there, I know that there are pregnant women, possibly terrified pregnant women in this crowd, so can you leave with one piece of advice? Because we're not supposed to give advice, but advice can be actually useful from women like you. So, and I know I clocked quite a few pregnant women on the way in, what would you say to those who are, there are in it now, like they're past the point of no return?
2: I would say there is a very, very high likelihood that you are going to fall in love when you give birth to this child, and that you are the whole universe. You are everything that they need, and um, you are Superwoman. So don't fret about the stuff that you can't control. Nobody has actually died from sleep deprivation, have they? Nobody's actually stopped I Googled this many times. It's inconclusive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's unlikely.
2: It's unlikely.
1: Anna? Yeah. Uh, So,
3: we talk about getting help, and sometimes people don't have family or don't have friends around. And that was, you know, I had my mum, I was so lucky, and I had an amazing husband, but I didn't have many friends in Canberra. So, my motto is it takes a village to raise a child, and sometimes
4: you have to pay the village.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That is an excellent motto.
4: (laughs) My um, sum up would be that motherhood is the most wonderful (laughs) and also the hardest thing you'll do. But, you know, through it, you will have so many wonderful experiences. You will meet so many amazing other people that will become your closest friends that you never even knew before you had this child. So I just think, like, enjoy it. It's it's amazing. You you know, you are going to be able to craft and shape this wonderful little human that gets to be all your own and you are the world to it. So it's it's going to be amazing. That's what I
1: would say. Even if it's hard, it is still going to be amazing. Um to finish up, the one piece of advice that I wish someone uh, the one thing I wish someone had told me is that everybody told me about the lack of sleep and how hard it would be. I got lots of those lectures. And everyone told me about the overwhelming love that Emma just referred to. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, love sounds nice. Um, Nobody told me how much fun it was. Nobody told me that bit. Well, not explicitly. No one said, this is more fun than anything else. You will fall in love with your partner all over again because you are invested in the most hysterical little person ever who will be in your house 24-7. <laughs> I have not laughed more than I have laughed in the last three years with a small person at home. They are so much fun, so don't let people scare you. It's not just the love and it's not just the heart. It is also really rollicking good time. And that's a very, very bad segue into the thing I'm about to talk about next, which is that um, late last year I travelled to Bihar in India, which is a state in northern India which is often called the forgotten state. Um, It's home to a casual around 110 million people, so uh, you know, not many. Um, It's a lot bigger than our country. Um, It's called the Forgotten State because most of the country lives below the poverty line. And when I say most, I mean more than 50% of those 100 million people live below the poverty line. It's particularly dire for women and girls. Only one in 20 women in that state participate in the workforce. The female literacy rate sits at around 50%. Um, Millions of girls are forced into early marriage every year. And there I witnessed firsthand the kinds of conditions that women give birth in uh, who don't live in wonderful countries like Australia and wonderful cities like Canberra. Um, And while this book talks about the complexities and the difficulties and the hardships of motherhood in Australia, it is nothing compared to the conditions in which women raise children all around the world every day. We are so unbelievably lucky to live in a country where first-class medical care is the privilege of all of us and rather than just the wealthy few. Uh, So one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to see if we could make a difference to the work that CARE do. Um, uh, So when you write a book, they're very nice people at Penguin give you an advance in case it sells no copies and you make no money, Um, which uh, thankfully two weeks in we know this book uh, hasn't done that. Um, With the help of the women who contributed letters to this book, we donated the entirety of that advance to CARE Australia, um, which was $20,000. And they are using that. Thank you. They uh, will be using that to do incredibly important work in the uh, region around Australia. Um, so uh, most of the money, I think, will go to Papua New Guinea, parts of it will go to Laos um, and wherever else they decide it's most needed. Um, CARE will also be in the foyer after tonight's event in case you feel like throwing them a little bit more cash. Um, I particularly want to thank uh, each of the women who contributed to this book because the very vast majority of them refused to be paid um, for their work and just said donate the money to CARE, which is a rare and wonderful thing Um, and finally as I mentioned we've talked about the harder and more difficult parts of motherhood tonight and I don't want for a moment to brush over those hard or difficult parts but I also want to leave you all with a reminder of the incomparable love and joy that comes with new life. The book starts with a quote from Gilda Radner who says that motherhood is the biggest gamble in the world. It is the glorious life force. It is huge and it is scary and it is an act of infinite optimism. So here is two acts of infinite optimism. Thank you so much for being with us tonight.
0: Thank you so much to everybody. The evening is not quite over, so please do join us in the foyer for some refreshments and some more conversation. And the bookshop is open tonight, so for those of you who didn't get a copy of the book with your ticket, there is a 10% discount just for tonight. So thank you very much to Jamila, Emma, Lani and Anna for your speech tonight, and I hope to see you all again soon. Thank you.